Now, we've been talking about King Jesus. King Jesus. And we have, uh, we have used this as our theme for our Resurrection Sunday. So I pray you're taking full advantage of that. And I pray that you're, you're uh, sharing with your friends and family. Come on, how many of us know that during Christmas, during Resurrection Sunday, Easter time, people are more um, interested in spiritual matters? And so you can, you can use that opportunity to share love, to share Christ, to share the gospel message, and you can invite them to church. So uh, invite someone you, you can think about, that someone that God has put on your heart to be part of our Resurrection Sunday. You also want to come early. Second service, you're pretty much full. So I'm going to encourage you to, to attend first service, attend third service, uh, if you can, if you can. Now... Uh, last week, these were our focal passages. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is a powerful statement. John is basically saying, hey, God became flesh. His Word is above His name. I want you to know, that's what the, the psalmist says. His word is above his name. His word represents what we know about God. Think about it. Anything you know about God, it's because he shared it with you. Now, many throughout history, have, uh, philosophers have said that if God didn't reveal himself to us, it would be impossible for us to know him. And so the truth is, God did reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. This was always God's plan to dwell with us. When God gave uh, Moses instruction to construct the tabernacle, he said very plainly, I want to dwell among my people. I want to dwell among my people. That ultimate fulfillment would be in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So last week we covered the topic, uh, divine, uh, excuse me, human king, human king. Today we're going to talk about his divinity, divine king. This is where we've been. We talked about a humble king, a human king. Today we'll cover divine king. Next week we'll cover savior and then finally the king of kings, the king of kings. So you might ask yourself, pastor, why are you putting so much emphasis on these theological type themes. Why a theological message in preparation for Resurrection Sunday? I believe it's important to understand what our Bible says about these issues because the Bible tells us that as we get closer and closer to Christ's return, and some have said, Pastor, do you believe that we'll see Christ's return in our lifetime? I believe that. Now, I'm not going to put a date on it. I don't know the day or the exact hour, but the Bible truly expects us to know the season. And the Bible's pretty clear that we're in the season. We're in the season. It says things like, let me just, just share with you. It says, uh, and this is Jesus answering the disciples' specific question. The disciples come to him in Matthew 24, and they say, Lord, what are the signs of your coming, and what should we expect? And so he begins to share with them. Now, one of the things that he says right from the beginning is the, the end will be marked with deception. 
Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of deception around today. There's, I mean, it's hard to believe what. And, and so you've got to be grounded in God's word. But he also says this. He says, keep an eye on the fig tree. When you see the fig tree beginning to bloom. Now, this is what's interesting to me. For centuries, scholars have believed the fig tree to represent Israel. But then when it comes to this passage, they say, well, we have no reason to believe that it would represent Israel. No, it represents Israel. So he says this. He says, keep an eye on the fig tree. When the fig tree begins to bloom, you know the time is at hand. That means the season is here. And he says this. This generation alive on the earth that sees those events will not pass until they see it all. They see it all. You can go to places like Psalms 90. And you say, but what's a generation? Because doesn't the Bible say somewhere uh, in Peter that a day is like a thousand and a thousand is like a day to the Lord? And Yeah, but it also says in that very same passage that in the end, scoffers will come and say, where is the sign of his return? That's also happening. But but watch, in in. In Psalms 90, the Bible says that a generation is 70 to 80 years. Okay, so the fig tree starts to bloom. When did the fig tree, fig tree start to bloom? Well, I believe it started to bloom. How about when Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled? Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled. Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. I've covered these before with you, but I'm just giving you a reminder. How about all of those prophecies fulfilled in 1948 when, G when Israel became a nation? How about in 67 when they fought the, uh, the Six-Day War and God gave them Jerusalem? How about all of these things that we see being fulfilled right now, could it be that this generation will receive their coming Messiah for the second time? I want us, I want us to, to look for the signs because during Jesus' first visitation, many people missed it. Why? Jesus said this. He said, you know how to read the signs of the weather? You know how to read the signs of the economy. How many of you have gotten pretty good at reading the signs of the economy? You know when we're going into a slump. You know when we're coming out. You know when the Federal Reserve starts to print and quantitative ease, you know that the economy is going to boom. When they start to contract, you know it's going to go down. We know these things. Jesus said, you know those things, but you don't know how to read the signs of the time and of my visitation. That's what he said. And so I want us to, to think about these things because there is deception going on right now. One of the biggest lies being told is, is in the form of New Ageism. New Ageism says that intrinsically God is in all and all is in God. And if that is true, then we are in fact part of God and therefore we are gods. And that Jesus was not God, he was just like us, but he was an ascended master come to teach us the way of enlightenment. How to connect with the universal Christ consciousness. How to live in harmony of frequency with the universe and the Christ consciousness. Sounds confusing to me, but 
But this is the way people are speaking these days. This is the way people are believing because they don't bother reading their Bibles. And the Bible doesn't show us that. The Bible says that God himself became human. But he was human. We covered that last week. This week, he was divine. He was absolutely God in the flesh. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, first of all, Jesus asserts it. Now, the word assert means something specific. What does the word assert mean? Well, according to the dictionary online, it means to state a fact or belief confidently and forcefully. So did Jesus, in fact, state that he was God? When we say divinity, it means divine, or it comes from the word deity. It means he, he confidently and forcefully stated, I am God. He did, in fact, do this. If you read with me in John chapter 10, 30 through 33, the Bible says, I and my father, which he is referring to. Now think about this. We're talking about a Jewish system. He's talking about Yahweh, Jehovah. He says, me and Jehovah, Yahweh, are one. We're one. He's claiming to be God. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them. Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these, for which of those works do you stone me? And then the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Now why would they stone him for blasphemy? Because it is blasphemous to claim to be God when you're not God. So these people that come around, run around the countryside say, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's what modern-day Christianity has put on him. What is this saying? He, he firmly, explicitly claimed to be God. So much so, he got himself killed for it. He claimed to be God. Now you say, what good works did he do? He did good works of gentleness and patience and kindness and love. And he was forgiving and caring. But he also, he also did supernatural works. Do you remember this? He calmed the sea. The lame would walk again. The dead would rise. The blind would see. He did what only God could do. And he's saying, which one of these great works that I've done? Is it the good works I've done? Is it the great works I've done? Why are you killing me? And they said, because you're claiming to be God. Now watch, you're going to see this as we build this, this sermon. That Jesus didn't only claim to be God, he showed he was God. And these go hand in hand. Because how many of us have learned talk is, come on now, talk is, put your money where you're, come on, it, this is true. Anyone can say I'm God. How many, how many crazies have come throughout the ages claiming to be God? It's another thing to prove it. So Jesus is saying, okay, you're, you're stoning me because I'm saying I'm God, but I've also proved it. I've shown you works. Watch. Let's keep going. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I... Do you realize that's the Old Testament name, Yahweh, which God gave to Moses at the burning bush? So Jesus is saying, before Abraham, Yahweh. He's calling himself Jehovah Yahweh. This is Jesus claiming to be, oh, he, he's being emphatic about it. 
why do they keep wanting to stone him for this? Well, according to Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16, the Bible says, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to Notice what it says. All the congregation shall certainly stone this person. The stranger, the one who is born in the land or outside of the land. Doesn't matter who. God's name is to be holy in Israel. And he's smack dab in the middle of Israel claiming to be God. This is why they killed him. Watch. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Okay, how about Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26? This is my favorite of the examples. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Watch this. One day, Jesus was teaching. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So he's demonstrating his divinity. This is what's so beautiful about Jesus' healing ministry. It wasn't just that he was kind. He was saying, God is kind because only God can do the things that I can do. And so he's doing these things. Watch. So much so that everybody comes to see. You have those that are, that are opposing him. You have those that are for him. You have those that are curious. You have, heard, you have those that just say, I just want to be around what's happening. So this, this crowd is so large, they pack out a house. Some of the men, some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus to see if he would be healed. Now watch what happens. When they could not find a way in, what did they do? They went up on the rooftop. They removed the tiles. I don't know if they made a hole in the roof. I'm not going to get into the, the construction and all of that. Much is said in, commentator, in commentary and in sermons about what the roof was like. I don't know. All I know is the Bible's pretty clear. They had to find another way other than the front door, right? And they were desperate, so they're bringing him into Jesus. Now, I want you to live this. It's packed out. You're the paralyzed guy, and you're like, please don't drop me, right? And your friends are just like, we've got you, bro. We've got you. Now, how many poker players in the room? Any poker players in the room? Yeah, you, like good Baptist, you won't dare admit it. Can I tell you, we're not Baptists here, so you can admit it. Any poker? I'm not a poker player. I've never played because I'm lousy at losing money. If I lose money, I flip out. Anyone else? You know, I just flip out. And plus, it's like against... God probably wouldn't like that. Anyway, but, but this is my point. I don't know much about poker, but I know this much, that four of a kind beat a full house. Is that true? I know it's true in God's word. Four of a kind, four guys, like-hearted, believing in faith that Jesus, serious stop, that Jesus is the answer, beat a full house. So you're the guy... Please don't drop me. Drop me down. Yes, I can see him. Please keep going down slowly, slowly, slowly. Can you imagine what Jesus is doing? He keeps teaching. He keeps healing people. And he's kind of checking out what's happening above him. And then the people are freaking out. Like, what is going on? This is going to be so cool. Some are saying, some are saying, oh, we'll see what he does now. This and that. I don't know. But the guy is completely paralyzed. He's sitting there. And as soon as he comes down, Jesus says, what? 
Come on. Your sins are forgiven. Are you kidding me? How many of you would be like, what are you talking about, Willis? I don't need my sins forgiven. I need to get Can I tell you, you need your sins forgiven before you need healing? Because this body will soon return to dust. But, but, a, but your sins being forgiven by God Almighty will, will bring you into fellowship in heaven with him forever. So Jesus gave him the greater gift because Jesus is an awesome God. He says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the Pharisees, the, those skeptics, are sitting there looking at him going, that's blasphemy again. Only God can forgive. Come on, only God can forgive. Dude, they're getting that. I mean, they are just fuming inside. It's boiling. And if you're that paralyzed man, you can feel it. Because he looks at them and he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm blaspheming God because I claim to forgive his sins. And you're probably going like, so are my sins forgiven? <laughs> right? Like, are they right or are you right? I'm going with you, Jesus. I'll take whatever else. And my stomach's usually not, the, it's my back. It's my pack. It's my pack, really. I, I got to suck it in. But anyway, he's like, and then he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're going to be angry, aren't they? <laughs> Who cares? Let me walk. Live this. So they're sitting there making a big deal of it. Jesus is going, your sins are forgiven. Which is easier? Watch. See, I don't just talk it. I walk it. If I say I'm God, I'm going to show you I'm God. Saying I'm God is your sins are forgiven. Now showing you I'm God is get up and walk. Which is easier? Which is easier? They're one and the same. They go together. This is something you need to understand about God's word. If he said it, he'll perform it. If he said it, he'll perform it. Why? This is what David declares. Lord, your hand always performs what your word declares. This is why David had so much faith. Because he said, God, you told me I'd be king, then I'm going to be king. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what the circumstances will be. But if your word said... Somebody needs to get this deep down in their heart. If God's word says it, his hand will perform it because he is not duplicitous. He is not double-minded. He is a God of integrity. He doesn't change his mind and waffle back and forth. And Jesus is saying, they're one in the same. My claim to God and my power showing that I have authority to be God. Mm. Well, I just, I just hit upon something there. I don't have time to, to, to. But, but watch, watch. Authority and power go hand in hand. I've shared that with you before. Why? Because if you have authority, you always have power or your authority means nothing. If you have power with no authority, then you're a renegade, you're a criminal, right? I'm going badge gun, right? Badge gun. You need the badge and you need the gun. Jesus' name or his word go hand in hand with his power, his authority and his power, his claim and his works. That's why 
when you claim to have faith but no works, it's dead. This goes hand in hand. So watch. He says, get up. Your sins are forgiven and walk. How would you have walked out of that place? I like, I like thinking about that. I would have packed up my mat and be like, see you, buddies. I mean, would you have skipped? Well, you couldn't because there wasn't enough room to get your strut on, right? To get your swag going like. I mean, what would you have done? We'd be like, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me. He just healed me. Get out of my way. You know, I don't know, but, but this is beautiful. He's claiming to be God. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. His followers affirm his deity. How do they affirm his deity? Well, in the book of Acts, it says this. Him, God, was exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. Him, God. Who is him, God? Jesus was exalted to his right hand, to the Father's right hand. Now, what does the right hand represent? Oh, this goes right with what I just said earlier. It represents authority and power. Jesus has authority and power as God. But watch what he has authority and power to do, to forgive sins. Because only God can forgive sins. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the... So now he's, he's God able to forgive sins, and he's the God that will judge the entire universe. Do you see why this is important? He wasn't just an ascended master. He wasn't just someone that tapped into the Christ consciousness. No, this is God, Yahweh of the Old Testament becoming flesh and giving us the New Testament. Saying that if you believe in me, then I shall raise you from the dead. And you shall live for eternity with me. This is why Job proclaimed, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall one day stand with him. You know what else the Bible says? Watch this. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all, and, and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to pastors, teachers, carers of the church, to shepherd the church, that means take care of the church of God. So the church is of who? Who does the church belong to? God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who's the one that purchased the church with his own blood? Jesus. And who does the church belong to? God. And God purchased the church with his own blood, which is Jesus. That means if you were logically writing out these statements, it would leave you to the point that God equals Jesus. God equals Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us, especially in passages like Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, that we should worship no one but God. Worship no one but God. And this is interesting because sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll see someone show up and you don't know if it's an angel or if it's Jesus because sometimes it's Jesus and sometimes it's an angel. In the Old Testament, you go, oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind. Yeah, it actually 
happen. And so the way we know is that the angel will immediately say, don't worship me, get up. When it's Jesus, he allows worship. And so here, the messenger of the Lord is saying, worship only who? God. Now watch, in Matthew 2, 11, Jesus allowed worship of himself because he is God. In Matthew 14, 33, in Matthew 28, 9, in Matthew 28, 17, in Luke 24, 52, and in John 9, 38, Jesus allowed worship. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And as a good Jewish young man, he was talking about Yahweh, not just a God, the only God. And so you have Luke chapter 5 showing something similar. Peter saw it, saw what? Well, that the boats were filled, filled with what? Filled with fish. And because he saw that they were filled with fish, he fell down on his face and began to worship at Jesus' knees. So if your knees are here, that means Peter was like, <laughs> but you don't worship anyone but. So who is Jesus? But how did Peter get there? This is beautiful. You want to know how? So up until this point, Jesus was just a teacher to Peter. Jesus shows up after a hard night of fishing, and Peter and the boys are cleaning their nets. They had gotten skunked. There was, they, they had nothing to show for all their labor, and they're cleaning their nets and listen to Jesus preach. Now, Jesus may have started mid-morning, and he is gone and gone and gone because, because Jesus didn't preach the little 30-minute messages you guys like. I mean, he went for it, right? He, and it could have been noontime. It could have been one or two in the afternoon. They're finishing up their preparations, ready for the next night. Now, why do the fishermen fish at night? This is the thing. In the ancient world, you don't have sophisticated pulley systems and hydraulics and all of this modern technology that allow fishermen to drop nets deep into the water. You can only drop as much as you can mechanically pull. Okay? You might have a pulley or two, but, but you've got to be able to pull it. So you've got to fish in the shallow end, in the cool of the night, when the fish come up to feed. Because in the hot sun, they go to the middle of the lake deep. Too deep for you to reach. So Jesus finishes his message. It's, it's hot. They finish putting up their nets, ready for the next night. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, go out into the deep and drop your nets. What does Peter say to him? He said, Lord, uh, you're a teacher. You're a preacher. You stick to preaching, I stick to fishing. Anyone ever watch The Chosen? If you haven't watched The Chosen, go watch it. It will melt your heart. And so Jesus says, Peter, please. He says, nevertheless, teacher. He says, teacher, because you have said it, I'll do it. So he does it. Just because the rabbi said a miracle takes place. The fish jump into the nets. This is, this is Jesus revealing his majesty to Peter. How does Peter return? 
Oh, teacher, that was pretty cool. He comes back saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Why is he confessing his sin? Because that's what you do to God. And he's worshiping him. You say, but he would have some trouble kind of sorting it all out. He would have some trouble, but it would come to full conclusion that day when Jesus would say, who do you say that I am? And Peter would say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I know, and upon that proclamation of faith, the church is built. The church is built. That's our foundation. That's what our name is about. We are built on the on the. On the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And that we put our faith and trust in him. You say, Pastor, is that it? No, the Bible attests to his divinity. How does the Bible attest to the divinity of Christ? Well, we've already read in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. We said that the word became flesh and dwelt among them, which was Jesus, built among us. But the Bible also says in 1 John chapter 2, he himself is the propitiation for our... This is important. Now, I know I'm coming against the New Age philosophy some today, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just skimming the surface. I'm just shooting a couple of shots that way. I mean, I need to spend an entire two-hour, three-hour, four-hour just really debunking that diabolical evil you know, um, antichrist philosophy. But I, but I will say this. Much of New Age thought will say things like, no, we're intrinsically good. That's opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, in the human heart abideth no good thing. For the human heart is exceedingly wicked. Wicked. That means we need a savior. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien was trying to get to. He was a Christian. Did you know that? When he was talking, when he, when he showed this, this, um, this character by the name of Gollum or Schmeagel, that if left alone by yourself in your own righteousness, it would show up to be what it is. You need a savior. You need a savior. This is why the Bible says he is our propitiation. Propitiation means our atoning sacrifice. He covers our sins. He washes it. He takes the place for us. We put our sins on him and he gives us his righteousness. There's a holy exchange. If you try to do it in your own strength, you won't get there. You say, is this true? I've heard New Age people openly say, you don't need atonement. You're basically good. You just need to learn how to live at that level. Anyone tried that? <laughs> See, Colossians says in Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Not 50%, not 20%, all. And you know what? There, I looked up the, the, the meaning of the Greek all. You know what it means? All. <laughs> Last one, and, I, and we're done. My favorite part is in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah gives a prophecy here, and it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. 
Then they will look on him whom they have pierced, or they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Wow. This has a double fulfillment and, an, and, and, and near and far. I don't want to make it too complicated, but this is what, what prophetically he's saying. He's, who is the he? Um, or who is the I that's speaking? And I will pour out. I will pour on. Who is the I speaking here? Anyone? God. Yes, God who? God Yahweh. God Jehovah. And they will look on me. I, me, Jehovah's talking about himself. So in the Old Testament, Jehovah's talking. In the New Testament, we find this in the book of John. John chapter 19, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This verse is used by John right after the Roman soldier pierces Jesus through the heart. So this is equating Yahweh, Jehovah, with Jesus. But not only that, they will mourn. They will cry. They will cry bitterly. The Jewish people have not yet cried for their Messiah like they will. But it's coming. It's coming. How do I know it's coming? I have statistics in my office showing that over the last 50 years, guys, there was only a few families in Jerusalem and Israel that would be considered real born-again Christians, and now there are tens of thousands. The tide is turning. I support a ministry every month that is witnessing and establishing churches in Israel, and they give me reports, and it's growing and growing and growing. Why? Because the Bible said very, 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 very plainly, when you see the fig tree begin to bloom, no, you also know that the church age, that's the time of the Gentiles, will come to a close. And God's attention will be focused back on Israel. When is the day of salvation for us Gentiles? Today. For we may not have tomorrow. And this is where I close my message. Remember, God's word says... The day of salvation is today. Trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Bible says that he is the resurrection and the life. If anyone puts their trust in him, he will resurrect them at the last day. You will forever live. But you've got to humble. See, it's not about ascending. It's about humbling. It's opposite of what the world says. The world says I must become more enlightened. The Bible says it's simple. A child can understand. Humble yourself and say, Lord, I need you. I need you. If you're here today and you want to say, Lord, I want to put my trust in you. I do need you, Lord. I give up give up trying to do it in my own strength I want to I want to experience this thing that you call salvation Lord in your word and this is what you do you say Father I put my trust in Jesus Christ he is the son of God 
And I ask that your Holy Spirit would enter and live in me and through me. Forgive me of all my sin. I turn my back on my way and I walk your way. I walk your way. If you pray that prayer or would like to pray that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Right here where you see. I see a hand right here. I see another hand over here. I see your hand, sir. Right here in front. Anyone else? It's not a matter of me seeing you, but I see a hand back here, right here in front. Anyone else? I see your hand. Just begin to talk to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, Father, I'm going to put my trust in you today. Just begin to say that. I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. I know that you are the son of the living God. I believe your word. And I know that I need a savior. So fill me by the power of your spirit. It's the Spirit of God that will help you walk. Because, Lord, I'm going to turn from my way and I'm going to walk in your ways. And so the Holy Spirit will help you. Church, I love you with all my heart. If you prayed that prayer, you went from death to life. And we want to congratulate you. And now you can partake with us because all believers partake until he comes. Father, thank you for your son. We know that he is our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, our substitute. Lord Jesus, because of your blood, we are righteous until you return. Maranatha. Amen. Church, I love you. Have a great, great week.